with the Pin Factory Gattison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Victoria Houston, the Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. This week, we'll be discussing lobbying, red tape, and the online safety bill. From Greensill to Dyson, the government has come under extreme scrutiny in the media for inappropriate contacts between ministers and senior business leaders. This scandal really kicked off over contacts from David Cameron about Greensill Capital seeking access to COVID loans. The background there, of course, being Greensill Capital uh, having some financial issues at the moment and trying to leverage some of their connections with the government to to gain preferential treatment. So I guess the first question here uh, is whether David Cameron and and more broadly the the ministers involved in these sagas acted inappropriately with the specifics of this case. Perhaps one of you wants to kick off with that. Well, it seems to me, and, and this is aside from any questions of compliance with the relevant regulations and codes of practice, etc. But it seems to me that Cameron did act inappropriately. He was an employee of Greensill, which I understand means that he is not within scope of the lobbying regulations. So perhaps, you know, in a pure legal sense, there was no contravention. But it does seem to me that he was using his position and his contacts in a way that was seeking to give unfair advantage to his his employer. On the positive side, of course, it seems like essentially he was brushed off quite effectively by the Chancellor and Treasury officials. So perhaps in some sense, this is less of a story than it's being made out to be because it looks as though um, whatever you know processes or even just political judgment within the Treasury seem to actually work in this sense. The more interesting aspect of the story, actually, which we'll probably come into is the nature of Greensill as a business and how it worked its way into the heart of government over a period of several years. Yeah, what's quite interesting here is I think the best criticism you can potentially make is that Greensill wasted a lot of time of senior ministers as well as treasury officials at a key moment during the COVID response. Um, What you're right about in Victoria is that the system worked. And what was relatively good about the COVID loan schemes was the fact that they were very broad-based. Uh, they, they weren't targeted at specific businesses or even specific industries, but anyone who, who fit within um, quite broad criteria about being a sustainable um, kind of potential long-term business could access these loans on, on relatively good terms to kind of ensure they could survive through the pandemic. Um, then I guess it becomes the interesting question about what was Cameron doing involved with this? Now, let's be honest, um, David Cameron wasn't hired by Greensill because of his PPE degree at Oxford. He was, he was hired there uh, because of his previous position as the Prime Minister and it was clearly trying to leverage that position. And it becomes a question of like what kind of lobbying should former senior ministers or even the Prime Minister be allowed to do? What kind of representation should business be allowed to make to government? Now I'm not a big fan of limiting the ability of businesses to make a claim to the public or make a claim to the government, but nor am I much of a fan of the government saying yes. Um, and in a sense, what this is, in some ways, is a very high-profile case 
of what goes on all the time across Westminster, which is lobbyists knocking on the doors of ministers, uh, on the doors of officials and trying to get special favours for their businesses. And that's naturally going to happen in any society. You're going to have rent-seeking businesses. The real test, though, of whether the system is working is whether or not um, the rent-seeking is rejected. Yeah, because if this was a situation of a constituency MP lobbying the Chancellor in order to save a factory in their constituency from being shut down and thousands of people losing their jobs, I don't think anyone would have a problem with that. Um, And obviously, ministers do need to be in touch with people in the business community so they can understand how their policies and regulations are operating in practice. Now, my understanding is that Greensill didn't qualify for the particular loans they were after because of the nature of the business they do. They were a pure financing business, which didn't fall within the scope of the loans. And Cameron was trying to do more than just explain the situation and make a case. He was he, he was really engaging in special pleading. Uh, you mentioned about the, the kind of being little wrong with uh, local MP lobbying ministers to say save a factory, for example. And one of the, the kind of fallouts from this Greensill case has been that Liberty Steel, um, who Greensill Capital were one of the main lenders to, are on the brink of collapse and have fallen into administration. There's been a lot of questions around whether or not the government has a role in in stepping in here and it's not the first time we've had this discussion more broadly about whether the government should bail out a large steel company and so I guess Matthew going to to you on that do you think that since they've been caught up in in this collapse and it's the kind of fault here of Greensill for their their particular business model not going too well do you think the government has a role to play in bailing them out here or is this not the best of ideas well i think we know there's going to be demands to bail them out and that may even just be some demands from local constituency mps rather than people who are high profile but i think the government should be very wary about once again bailing out uh, another steel company it seems like it's not a particularly sustainable industry in the UK, and, and obviously there's a lot of reasons for that in terms of the cost of electricity and things the government's been involved in when it comes to regulatory burdens for, for businesses, and we'll come onto that later. But at a fundamental level, these, these companies seem to go around the trough very regularly seeking special treatment by the government. And quite frankly, I don't think it's that relevant, the the fact that they've been caught up in the Grensel scandal. You know, there's, there's, there's another thousand reasons why this company was probably going to end up in a collapse anyway. Um, and the Grensel capital was, was meant to save it from collapse and hasn't worked. It hasn't proven effective. And that's because of more fundamental underlying economics reasons. When they subsidise these jobs, they... they create huge market distortions and market problems um, for, for very little benefit when it comes to employment or when it comes to broader economic prosperity. And, and sometimes, you know, as, as Thatcher classically did with the mines, and it's obviously very controversial, you need to support people and the individuals who lose their jobs. Bailing out failing industries is not a sustainable path. Yeah, and I, I think we had the situation where some of Greensill's model here more broadly was to look at some of the more overlooked aspects of the steel industry that hardly anyone else would buy, try to make a functioning and successful metal business out of that. And fairly unsurprising that this didn't go particularly well. It's worked in the past, but in, in this particular case, it didn't. We also saw Lex Greensill, Cameron, making him the uh, advisor or an advisor to number 10 to investigate the potential supply chain finance. Do you think that 
kind of this hiring of external advisors in this case was that an appropriate scheme for the government or have they really screwed up quite big time here so i think the revelations i think it was the sunday times that had been digging into the whole backstory of how green cell came to be such a favored partner let's say within government and this goes back indeed to when david cameron was prime minister and to when Sir Jeremy Hayward was very senior in the civil service. I'm not sure if he was cabinet secretary at that point, but he was certainly very senior within the civil service. And for some reason, he was completely taken in by this clever model of invoice financing, supply chain financing that Greensill had come up with while he was actually working for, I think it was Citibank at the time. And somehow, um, this is this is the big question structurally within the civil service this guy who was employed by a bank a major multinational bank was somehow given a desk and an email address an official function within the civil service and he used that to market his particular business model in order to try as he was describing it to improve the processes for paying government suppliers now that this is where I get really confused because it's so obvious that that's just quite a silly idea. Um, <laughs> government does not have liquidity problems in paying its suppliers. It might have administrative problems that glue up the system, especially when you have subcontractors and everyone gets paid via a prime. So there are certainly administrative problems, and especially for smaller businesses. But introducing an intermediary who is always going to actually add cost to the process because they're not going to do this for free is so obviously a terrible idea. And many people within HMRC and other government finance officials knew this right from the very beginning and pushed very hard against it. And yet somehow, you know, Greensill himself was obviously a very persuasive guy and he managed to sell his idea so successfully and then ultimately ended up hiring not just David Cameron, but other senior uh, official, or at least one senior official from within government as well. And then we had following that, it, it all started to come out into the open that some of these people were not just taking these jobs after they left public service, but were actually working in the private sector at the same time as doing senior roles in the civil service. Now, you can understand how that might have come about, especially in the sort of post-Blair idea of having much closer third way public sector, private sector working together. Lots of people often criticise the civil service for being very detached, not really understanding how the real world works. So maybe why wouldn't you want them getting private sector experience? But I think this shows that that at best has to be handled very, very carefully and perhaps more realistically just doesn't work at all. It, it does come across as this pernicious conspiracy against the public in the sense that Greensill managed to somehow persuade all these senior people to give him an opportunity to sell his business model within government, within number 10, in an official kind of advisory capacity in which effectively the rest of the civil service has to give this guy time of day because he's, he's coming from the prime minister's office. I mean, supply chain finance as a model makes some sense in the private sector, because if you're a company that particularly a small business, you put out an invoice, it takes 90 days to get paid. Maybe you want to borrow against the value of that invoice and, and get your money a bit sooner. But for the government, 
they don't have an issue with cash flow because they can always borrow more, much cheaper than any private company can. Um, and if the if the question is, I don't know, paying NHS staff more rapidly, then they can update the systems and give money quicker to the NHS. It doesn't actually fundamentally change the amount of state spending. It's just uh, a systems issue. Uh, so on the face of it, it, it is absurd and quite worrying. And you've also got to wonder whether this was Cameron's exit plan. Is, is this something, you know, he knew he'd bread sell a, a bit of favours in government and maybe he'd get hired down the track or something like that. That's what I'd be interested in asking about. Um, has he associated himself with this world because he, he thinks there's going to be some benefit to it? Maybe he thinks that it's also selling a good product. I'm sure he does, but um, it, it's very hard to separate out uh, self-interest. And I think David Cameron was also famously said that he thinks former prime ministers should be on the backbench. And then in, instead of that, very quickly left parliament and, and, and went to these, these lobbying roles. So I think he's, he's got some, some hard questions to answer about this particular set of behaviour. I, I certainly wouldn't mind having a business card from number 10 every time I, I met someone. I'm sure pretty much every single business person in the country would, would quite like to have that. But in this particular case, as you explained, Victoria, it doesn't really seem to make much sense why he was given such a prominent seat within the, the machinery of government. And I mean, you mentioned that the business model here, supply chain financing or reverse factor uh, reverse invoice factoring, I should say, Matthew, that was used by Greensill. And one of the things that concerns me about some of the, the more left-leaning coverage here is that a lot of people are blaming some of the financial fallout for this on the financial model and the financial sector being flawed and terrible. And actually, this is a terrible use of, of this reverse invoice factoring. But from, from my understanding, it's a fairly well-established and perfectly reasonable financial technique. It's just lending people the money to buy their supplies and collecting them when they sell their product. There doesn't seem anything particularly nefarious. It's just in this particular case, things didn't go according to plan. One more kind of specific scandal or, or lobbying issue that's come up recently before we move on to some of the general problems and, and solutions in this area, and that's centering around James Dyson and the revelations coming out uh, a couple of weeks ago now that he was in text with the Prime Minister, basically told that he would not have to pay additional taxes if he was to provide the UK ventilators. Now, my initial thoughts on this are, well, in some sense, you've got to cut the PM and, and government more broadly some slack here in that when you're dealing with potential emergency situation like COVID and you're, you're desperately looking to secure supplies that you think are adequate in the case of ventilators, then, you know, you, you, you might look to, to more unorthodox areas in cases where usually the rules would reject such things. I think it makes a bit more sense when you're under pressure to get something very, very quickly and there are no alternatives. Now, as it transpired, this contract for, for ventilator provider did not go ahead and it turns out we didn't need a, a huge increase in the supply of ventilators for the UK. But certainly I remember at the time there was some real concern that we, we simply would run out of ventilators. Do you think that in this particular case it's a, a valid reason or justification for these text exchanges or should we make sure that we maintain uh, our principles on this area no matter what the situation is. So my view is that these texts between James Dyson and the Prime Minister were not a, a particular problem at all. Um, we would complain, you know, we complain all the time that politicians are out of touch and detached from reality. And then when they're actually talking to and having conversations with important business people in the national interests, they can't win then either. Now, arguably, the whole madcap panicked mission to try and manufacture new designs of ventilators was ridiculous 
And I know, Daniel, as you say at the time, that we were operating in a in a low information environment and perhaps making unusual uh, decisions was understandable. But I think that actual process of why we were doing this is actually more interesting than the conversations that the Prime Minister was having with Dyson, which after all, were not about Dyson's personal tax particularly. I think he, yes, it would have affected him, but it was more like a factual conversation about the employees of Dyson that he was bringing in from overseas. Were they going to essentially be penalised and end up being double taxed in this country and in their country of, of domicile for the work they were doing in the UK national interest. I think it's a perfectly reasonable conversation to have. Now, should the Prime Minister be so available to people just ringing him up or texting him? I'm not sure. Apparently, there's a story that he's people are always going mad at him because he does give his mobile number out to everyone and he's had the same number for decades. And apparently, I mean, whether this is a particularly helpful story that was planted by, you know, someone to give a more favourable impression, but there's a story that a constituent uh, in Uxbridge texted him because someone had given him his mobile number to try and sort out their universal credit claim. And Boris did exactly the same. He got straight in touch with the relevant department and facilitated this guy getting his universal credit sorted out. So in a, in a way, as long as he gives the same platform and is amenable to having those chats with James Dyson and a random constituent from Uxbridge, maybe it's not such a problem. Yeah, I think ultimately the government concluded that they were not going to make people tax residents in the UK, which would potentially increase your your tax burden uh, if you're providing emergency support to do with the COVID response. And that carries through just as much to the senior Dyson staff, as well as to an NHS doctor or nurse who's come into the country temporarily to help with the pandemic response. Um, On top of that, Dyson was, um, even if the the ventilators they made were ultimately needed, um, they claimed that they spent about £20 million on the product, none of which got reimbursed by the government. So if anything, they're they're just trying to kind of slightly reduce their costs, but we're we're doing what is um, clearly a public good. I I think there is something slightly uncomfortable about uh, someone who is a senior business person having that kind of access to the Prime Minister. Um, it's obviously, you might be lucky enough to be an Oxford resident, but not everyone in the country gets that. Um, and in that sense, I think it's been uncomfortable. But in the overall you know, conclusion of it, the question is always, when it comes to lobbying, what was what the government decided to do as a result in the public interest? And I think there's a pretty strong case here that giving those assurances to Dyson were in the public interest. I think it's just important if the Prime Minister is going to be taking these texts that, of course, and ultimately I think that's probably how it came out into, into the public domain, is that that needs to also make sure that this properly catalogued um, and disclosed tra- in a transparent way when the decisions are being made, just so we have an idea of, of what's going on here. It's not the issue that he received it. I think there was also the additional question of, of well, the, the Prime Minister changed a number and the, the civil service encouraging that. Well, I mean, trust the civil service to want the Prime Minister not to be particularly accessible because they want to make sure they can control the information the Prime Minister receives and they can be the key influencer. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that the Prime Minister also... Is, is talking to other people and also engaging with other topics and not just speaking to civil servants. We've always got to just judge them on the outcomes and, and what the result of that is. And if it does lead to special benefits for some people, we should be disappointed. But at the same time, if it leads to better policy making, I think it's something that's that's not an issue. Yeah, I, I think I agree with both of your takes here and that the actual content of this text exchange is, is completely unproblematic and I think makes sense. For me, the concern is 
the method in which it's communicated, i.e. Boris's private phone number, as opposed to more official and potentially accountable channels, it does seem like, you know, even, even if it's the case that you're an Uxbridge constituent who's able to get in touch with the Prime Minister, sadly, that's not everyone in the UK, or that's not everyone that can, can get in touch with, with a particular person. So for me, it's important to make sure that whatever channels you have for contact are transparent and accountable, just so, you know, if there is an issue and something comes up, you can quickly get the the appropriate evidence in relation to it. But I guess just to, to finish up this section, thinking more broadly about rent-seeking behavior and the potential for crony capitalism, what sort of solutions do, do we see to this issue, if indeed we see it as a major issue at all? And the, the first one that springs to mind for me, and it's one that I imagine is probably deeply unpopular, is is to actually pay politicians more, because it's quite a good incentive, I think, to prevent ex-ministers or, or ex-prime ministers from going on to secure these these lucrative external advisor roles in private firms and prevents uh, an incentive for lobbyists to, to kind of get any sort of capture on politicians, whether it's after they've be, been a minister or, in fact, during their time in a particular position, at least they're, they're less amenable to uh, financial or non-financial forms of lobbying. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are, Victoria and uh, Matthew. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my first thought is that the best way to prevent rent-seeking is to just eliminate or reduce the available rents. So the idea of you know introducing ever more regulations and controlling lobbying with more registers and more commissions um, I don't think that's going to work what we just need is for government to be less interventionist so that it's less in the interest of private companies and individuals to be pleading their case and trying to um, you know get whatever regulation or whatever loan scheme or bailout to come their way, just have less of those kinds of schemes and interventions, and you will see less rent seeking seeking to exploit them. And then, in terms of politicians' susceptibility to influence, it's it is a good point that our leadership, our prime minister and cabinet ministers, I think in global terms, are not very well paid at all. Now, obviously, when you say that to the man in the street or maybe people who've just lost their jobs in in the COVID shutdown, that's pretty hard to bear because they're on reasonable amount of money. But perhaps in the context of the scale of the responsibilities and in the context actually of what even chief executives of local councils actually earn as much as and more than the prime minister in some instances. So I definitely think there's a case for that. Good luck making that case, though. It's it's never going to be a popular measure you know, increasing politicians' pay. I'm not sure anyone's going to put that in their manifesto. Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to be particularly popular, even if it is a good idea. I'm also open to the idea of paying civil servants better as well, but that's partly also to, to try to attract top talent uh, and bring in people from, from the private sector, not at the same time as the private sector, may I hasten to add, uh, perhaps at different points in their career. Um, I think, though, the, the underlying point here is that the government is going to be a focus for rent seekers uh, when it is capable of doing so much and there, there is so much rent available. Um, some of the way this is put in the, the kind of public choice theory is that there's a certain set of entrepreneurial individuals out there 
and they have to make a decision about where to put their focus. And if, if the, the most possible potential benefit is in the private sector is being innovative, is creating something new, that's where they're going to put their focus. But if there are huge returns to be made by achieving minor policy changes or regulatory changes or tax changes or whatever else it is, they're going to focus on government. I think Black Terencio is a good case of this. I'm sure he's a, a perfectly brilliant guy. And he saw that there were some benefits by um, working in government and, and trying to push the Prime Minister number 10. And what would be ideal would be to have a, a smaller government in which he doesn't see that kind of benefit and he instead does something more productive and, and useful with his life. Well, I think on the subject of trying to cut back red tape in order to cut down on crony capitalism and potentially harmful lobbying, we can move on to our next topic, which is in fact on red tape. The ESO's latest paper, Ignorantia Legius, explains why the UK needs to reduce, simplify and properly catalogue the law. It comes as the Institute of Economic Affairs also released a paper written by Victoria about the Financial Ombudsman Service. Um, just to start off with the kind of broader issues that were discussed in the ASI paper before we, we discuss your paper, Victoria, I'm um, sure some of your thoughts in terms of what our author, Robin Ellison, was discussing in terms of just the growing size, scope of government regulation and just the, the kind of huge cost that has. Yeah, it's a great paper and really, really important stuff that I think is actually under commented on. Actually, we talk a lot about the cost and the burden of regulation, but from pure just the logistical effort of tracking the laws and regulations that your particular business concern is subject to is in itself a very resource-intensive challenge, especially in heavily regulated sectors like, say, financial services or chemicals, these kinds of industries. And, you know, the, the sheer volume and the rate of change is in itself sucking up resource and causes risk, which in itself, you know, causes the cost of, of doing business to, to go up, which ultimately uh, has lots of knock-on effects throughout your business uh, and ultimately has adverse effects on consumer welfare. The regulations are um, unpredictable as well. Uh, in the case of the Financial Ombudsman Service, they sometimes the Ombudsman Service will even just sort of take its own quite unexpected interpretation of a particular regulation, which again causes great uncertainty and cost to, to businesses, especially smaller businesses and challengers who don't have huge uh, legal departments and compliance departments. So it has, also has very anti-competitive and anti-innovation effects. And I think, you know, what Robin really highlights in, in your report is that this all this is actually very much at odds with principles of the rule of law. Now, however you define the rule of law, you know, if, if, if you take a, even if you take a very narrow sort of Hayekian, Razian definition of the rule of law, or if you want to expand it in a more rights-based, walk-in uh, sort of way, you still have to accept that there's certain core facets of the rule of law, which are transparency, predictability, prospectivity, and the sheer volume and changeability and inaccessibility of the laws and regulations on our books and all the additional layers of guidance and uh, enforcement actions by regulators, they really challenge the, the fundamentals of the rule of law. Mm. Yeah, it really is kind of a back to first principles here. Uh, just looking at 
how, and in fact, the kind of most shocking fact, which was the kind of um, premise of the paper in, in many respects when I asked Robin to write it, was the fact that there isn't a particularly well accessible cataloging of the law. Um, the government's uh, websites are, are vastly inadequate and don't contain all the information that you would require to, to figure out the law. And you usually have to also purchase quite expensive additional services that um, go into a lot more detail. Um, it practically makes the law inaccessible to the average person. We're all expected to to follow the law and, and classically ignorance of the law is no excuse. You can't just say, well, you know, Your Honor, I didn't know murder was illegal. And, and perhaps in that case, it's fair enough. You should be able to figure that out by yourself. But just in terms of the, the minute minutiae and complexities of every single different kind of a law, um, we're, we're probably, practically speaking, always all the time breaking laws without even realising it. Um, and because there's so much law, um, it effectively empowers uh, courts or police services or prosecutors to decide when they're going to apply the law and when they're not going to apply the law. Because if they were to be constantly doing that, they'd be probably going after pretty petty crimes all the time. So you have this underlying rule of law issue. And on top of that, the fact that let alone you know the average member of the public can't interpret the law, judges have often struggled to work out what the correct sentencing is because the law is so confusing. And then you, you look at businesses and the red tape burden that creates, it costs them like $100 billion a year in, in red tape as a result of regulation. A large proportion of that is just trying to work out what in the world the law is. And of course, uh, don't, don't say this to a lawyer because uh, lawyers, of course, you know make, make their dime off all this. But the reality is that it's all become a little bit too much and, and there's a need to step back sometimes and think about what can we do to make it the law more accessible? And it probably means both shrinking it, but also improving its cataloging and, and its accessibility. Yeah, the, the lawyer point's a really interesting one for me because I like to think about red tape in this sort of way as a, a kind of back channel subsidy to, to lawyers uh, and a, a jobs guarantee to, to lawyers in some ways. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of cases where judges or, or lawyers, uh, but judges especially actually complain about the sheer volume of law when they're the ones at the front line who should be best able to deal with it. And if our highest judges in the land are complaining about the sheer volume of law, you know something is wrong. And a point that Victoria mentioned as well, I thought was particularly pertinent, is not just the overall cost of red tape as a, as a burden to business that's an issue here. That's hard to estimate, but the, the National Audit Office put it at around £100 billion in 2017. It, it's also the competition aspect of this is really important. If you're a small business, you're not well equipped to deal with not just the actual compliance of a lot of these regulations themselves, but the search costs, which are, you know, un Need, they, they don't need to be as substantial as they are. It's just that the UK has a particularly poor approach to cataloguing the existing body of law, i.e. It, it doesn't really do that to a large extent. Um, and it could learn a lot from, from other countries' approaches here. And that there have been attempts in the past to try and change this. So, I mean, it has been acknowledged as an issue, although, as Victoria said, it's not talked about very much we had the attempts to simplify the tax code a long time ago the red tech challenge classically under david cameron yeah exactly there's kind of lip service being paid to all of this but there are a few examples and one that robin talks about in the papers that i found quite interesting was the sentencing act last year in 2020 that consolidated a lot of existing legislation under a single statute and at least the impact assessment suggested that it would save nearly a quarter of a billion pounds over 10 years just because of reduction in sentencing mistakes. Now, if sentencing mistakes are contributing to that amount of value, it, it concerns me that it really does undermine the rule of law 
itself. It's not just a case of you know increased regulatory burdens on businesses. It's actually undermining the efficiency and the the justice system itself. So that there's a worry here from both utilitarian perspective, had to get that in once in the podcast, uh, but also a more rights-based perspective and making sure that the law is applied equally and fairly. Uh, Victoria, I'm interested in, in some of your thoughts, and, and you obviously work quite closely in the regulatory space uh, at the IEA in terms of some of the ideas that Robin was putting forward. So he is a big focus on the holistic law publication, like in Australia and New Zealand, so that you can work out what the law is at any given time and what the regulations are as well, um, as well as rules like three out, one in, or some of the, the reg data focus, which is about reduce, setting a goal to reduce the restrictive clauses in law. I'm wondering what, what you think works in terms of trying to, to deal with this issue, or is it, is it all end up being too hard and nothing really succeeds in the end? It's, yeah, it's a, it's a question and a challenge that has been tackled by successive governments, actually, even since, certainly in this country, since Gordon Brown was prime minister and started looking at better regulation initiative and we've had loads and the the one in one in two out and then it was one in three out and then currently or most recently it was thought that actually one in two out or three out doesn't really work terribly well because you could bring in a massive regulation like say the GDPR and get rid of two tiny inconsequential forgotten regulations and that would still qualify as one in two out so they tried to rejig it into a, um, a, a cost-based measure where they would in aggregate the cost of regulations your department brought in had to be outweighed by the, the cost benefit of, of those that you were getting rid of in aggregate over the course of a year and you know all of these things are quite good ideas and you would rather have them than not but it's not actually making a dent the burden is still growing not least because these kinds of targets the business impact target or the one in two out always tend to exclude some of the worst offenders for example up to now eu regulation for obvious reasons was never included in the business impact targets hopefully now it will be or the inherited legacy EU regulations should definitely be within any better regulation initiatives and and they certainly are it looks like so far but you know things like pensions law employment law tax laws and regulations none of them are included within these initiatives so far and yet they represent a huge part of the cost of regulation to businesses and then obviously criminal justice and individual laws as opposed to business laws. The Coronavirus Act and associated regulations have been absolutely atrocious for the rule of law, not just because of the way they were introduced and rushed through Parliament without, a, well, sometimes in many cases, not even, you know, subject to a vote or retrospectively voted on, but also because of the way the police enforced them and a great majority of prosecutions, if not all, actually under the Coronavirus Act were found to be wrongful prosecutions because certainly the police didn't really know what the law was from one day to the next because it was changing so frequently, which is a great example or a terrible example of the impact that abandoning the rule of law can have on individual rights and freedoms. One of the things I just find amazing is looking at, and, and the paper does a good job of this in a graph later on, is just looking at the increase in the 
kind of yearly body of law over time. Um, and to me, it's just it's it's not a sign of a more successful state uh, in terms of being able to successfully regulate our lives to become better and more more prosperous. If anything, it's the complete opposite. You look at the number of statutory instruments being introduced year on year from the early 1900s to present day, and it just basically the trend is going up year on year with very, very few exceptions. You have more and more of these statutory instruments being passed every single year. And the same is actually true for public and, and general acts more broadly as well, although the trend is slightly less worrying on that. I wonder whether in the UK we have a very specific problem with this in the fact that the corpus of existing law is just not really accessible. I mean, we've had attempts with the legislation.gov database, but that's in theory. It's it's supposed to incorporate all the changes that are you know fully updated and, and to the day. But as you mentioned, Victoria, it was something like the Coronavirus Act, but plenty of other examples as well in practice. A lot of the revisions to this site are ad hoc, and it's it's not easy to follow the changes that have been made. So, you know, just as a citizen, never mind as a business or as uh, someone involved in the criminal justice system, if you want to find out the law for your own country on a specific issue, you can't do it. <laughs> in in many cases, it's not up to date. In many cases, it's incomplete. And to me, there's, there is a kind of principled objection here is that you you should, uh, being a citizen of a particular government, have the opportunity to know which particular laws govern you. Mm. And, and looking just uh, beyond just the power of, of legislation, of, of the statutory instruments, of kind of executive decision making, of the regulators, um, Victoria, your paper goes down to the next level of, of governance over us in the case of the financial Ombudsman service. I kind of just know your thoughts in terms of what an ombudsman should be doing and, and what their role should be, and, and perhaps the ways this regulator or this ombudsman has turned into a regulator and gone a little bit too far. Yeah, so the ombudsman was set up because ultimately it's very difficult for individual consumers who have a dispute with their bank to get access to justice through the courts. You know, if you have a fight with your insurance company because they're not paying out on a claim you're really not going to take them to court. There's such asymmetries of resource that that's just not viable. And so partly in the interests of general fairness to consumers and partly to improve confidence so that consumers would feel more comfortable in buying financial products and therefore stimulate the market by improving confidence. The Ombudsman service was set up about 20 years ago and it just went completely beyond what anyone had expected when it was originally set up. Uh, obviously, the payment protection, PPI, mis-selling scandals just caused it to absolutely balloon. And they, the, the, the volume of cases that they were handling was just out of control. And, and for a while, they were in real trouble just because they couldn't cope with the resourcing requirements of processing so many thousands and thousands, thousands of claims. And then, so consumers, aggrieved consumers felt hard done to because their claims weren't being processed fast enough. But to me, the much more concerning aspect is that the ombudsman has so much discretion to make a decision in an individual complaint based on what they think is fair and reasonable in the circumstances, which is pretty wide ranging and arbitrary. And they do try to be what they call consistent, but 
ultimately, they're not a court, they're not a legislator, so they can't really formally create precedent. So financial service providers are left in this grey area where they have to try as best they can to act in ways that the ombudsman is going to consider fair. But at the same time, they also have to comply with laws and regulations. And sometimes the ombudsman actually over in a sense overrides actual black letter laws and regulations based on what they consider to be fair in the circumstances so it's very very difficult for financial service providers especially smaller ones like independent financial advisors and the competition issue here is really pronounced because big large corporates and big banks are fine they have huge provision for these kinds of risks but small independent financial advisors are simply exiting the market of providing financial advice to anyone who isn't either very rich or, or very well connected because the, the 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 risk they expose themselves to for in in the event of future claims isn't worth it and also they're pretty much uninsurable for various technical reasons and the FCA hilariously uh, has noticed this and they have investigated what they call an advice gap where less affluent consumers aren't able to access good advice on their pensions and investments. And instead of trying to actually tackle some of the fundamental regulatory issues that are driving this, they want to introduce more regulation on professional indemnity insurance providers to force them to insure these uninsurable risks uh, and introduce things like regulatory sandboxes for better technology which is all nice and and and, and good, or certainly the, the emphasis on innovation is, but maybe they should be looking closer to home to try and identify why it's so hard to do business in this area. You mentioned um, just then one of the things that concerns you is that they're not necessarily bound to apply black letter law. And this is something that really worried me when I read your paper. And a really good example of this that you cited was a, a consumer complaining they were charged a rather large amount for exceeding the maximum mileage under a car finance agreement. And even though you know existing contract law would say that financial the financing company in this case was fine and the contract wasn't obscurely worded or misleading or anything like that, uh, the ombudsman nonetheless decided to uh, to flout the law or, or not really bother with it and side with the consumer. And I think more generally in this country, you have a problem where these sort of arm's length bodies are able to circumvent what has been decided in democratic sense through through legislation in order to apply what they see as, as fair and reasonable. And that seems to me like it's going way beyond the scope of what, what they were set up to do. And it, it seems like, to me, at least, I'm, I'm not an expert on the ombudsman themselves, but it seems like with the PPI stuff, what you had is initially a kind of expansion of resources devoted to them in order to deal with that. And now that those cases are starting to decline, it's not as much of a major issue. You're left with a very large and very powerful body with that sort of resourcing that actually ha has more power and and resourcing than they, they necessarily need to. Yeah, and that car finance example, I mean, that one jumped out at me and people like us are horrified by that. We think it's terrible. The Financial Ombudsman Service is really proud of it and they trumpet it as an example on their website of, of a, a successful case that they've resolved. And, and it's the kind of moneying as well that is actually quite counterproductive because it's the message that sends to consumers is, don't worry about reading the terms and conditions. We'll sort it all out for you afterwards if it goes wrong. 
and it tries to de-risk consumer choices which is going to be very counterproductive and quite infantilizing. Well, talking of excessive nannying and over-regulating, uh, I think it's time to move on to our final discussion about the online safety bill. The government is expected to shortly release a much-anticipated online safety bill that will create a duty of care on digital firms and give sweeping new powers to our wonderful friends at Ofcom to dictate how platforms uh, moderate themselves. So the government is really promising that a lot of these proposals in the online safety bill are not going to infringe on free speech. Um, They seem very, very keen to emphasize this fact, um, whilst also they want to commit to making the UK the safest place in the world to be online. That seems to me like a bit of a contradiction. Do you think that it's even possible to make the UK the safest place in the world to be online, or if it is possible, is that desirable? Well, I think this is a pretty classic case here of the government trying to be everything to everyone and promising so much and, quite frankly, uh, putting forward uh, a bill that, that, as it currently stands, will achieve very little. So on the one hand, they're, they're creating this duty of care on, on digital services companies and social media companies effectively Uh, but on the other hand are not really doing anything extra in terms of going after perpetrators of unlawful behavior they're including things like offensive material and um, speech that could cause significant adverse psychological harm as within scope of this and something that Ofcom will be able to make guidance about with some limited parliamentary oversight when it comes to effectively legal speech and how legal speech is moderated on platforms. Despite the fact the government claims this isn't impacting free speech, they're making exceptions for, let's say, journalistic content. Why there needs to be exceptions for journalistic content if there's no real threat to free speech isn't exactly clear to me. What they're going to mean by journalistic content is exactly clear. They're talking about how privacy isn't going to be impacted, but also there's lots of murmuring about how encryption is a huge problem. And of course, then they're empowering Ofcom. So there's, there's just a lot of confusion at the heart of this policy and the government's thinking on this. This has been going on for many years. And quite frankly, they're, they're dealing in what is an extremely complex and difficult policy space uh, when it comes to online content moderation, where arguably the platforms are failing in both directions in the sense that they're being excessively censorious, partly because of government pressure, partly because of their own um, fascinations. But at the same time, they're not actually moderating away unlawful behavior, real harassment, child pornography, whatever else it may be. And that's because it's just genuinely really hard to do. And there's something that these tech companies have struggled to do, the best resource companies in human history with some of the smartest people and best programmers and engineers. And so how the government thinks they can come in and create a better program and a better service here. And all that's coming along is a lot of confusion. I think Matthew's exactly right. This is a very muddled bit of lawmaking that we're about to see, I fear. I mean, we haven't actually seen the text of the bill. It's been promised for quite some time. There's been a white paper and a couple of responses to the consultation associated with it. The government seems to have thankfully rode back from some of the worst excesses of what was originally proposed in the white paper. But still, what they're ultimately proposing is to make digital platforms, online platforms, gatekeepers to moderate away and filter out, or even just deprioritize, which is effectively the same in many respects, content that the government considers to be undesirable, not just unlawful, but undesirable because it might harm someone who, who reads it and is upset. And this comes down to, you know, we talked about making 
the, the UK the safest place. The government's definition of safety is, is where the trouble comes here because they're not just talking about protecting us from, you know, really illegal, violent content or content that's arranging or inciting terrorism. They're talking about safety from reading upsetting or horrible things. Yeah, I, I have a concern around the actual gov- the government's actual aim here about making the online world a safer place because ultimately if you're a tech platform if you're say twitter or facebook and you employ for the sake of argument a thousand moderators to deal with specific complaints if the scope of those complaints that you you have to deal with is expanded then what you're going to get is ultimately less resources devoted to the stuff that's already moderated i.e the already illegal uncontroversially harmful and negative stuff, your violent threats, your illegal illicit material online, etc. So there's a concern for me here that not only are we going to be threatening free speech online, but we're also going to be making the UK a less safe place to be online, as most people would define safe. But there's also, there's been a lot of talk about this special exemption that you mentioned, Matthew, being given to journalistic content. Is there any indication of how this is actually going to work? If I put in my Twitter bio that I'm a citizen journalist, am I allowed to send an MP some naughty words when I dislike what they have to say? That is an excellent question and one that I sadly cannot answer. Uh, I mean, you've got to remember that talking of special pleading uh, in our previous conversations, uh, of course, the government didn't want to get on the wrong side of major media outlets. And there was some concern from the Society of Editors about the impact of online harms because it would effectively also include content posted by journalists or posted by media organizations on digital platforms. And that's a major uh, revenue and traffic source for for these companies. And if you think of something like the not too um, long ago when talk radio was temporarily banned from YouTube over some of their content related to the pandemic. Um, you've got a clear case here where the the action that, that is being taken on disinformation and misinformation is having a real impact on a media source that the government is relatively sympathetic to or as, as relatively powerful in, in the UK context. And the government wasn't particularly happy. On the other hand, though, the, the government's latest response when it comes to the online safety bill said that they actually quite liked YouTube's policy on disinformation and misinformation. So on the one hand, they're endorsing what these companies are doing and encouraging and pushing and creating legislation to make sure that more companies have to do it. On the other hand, when it actually happens in practice, they go, well, well I don't know about this anymore. I mean, it doesn't seem fair to me. The, the press freedom is a subset of just general freedom of expression. It's your your right and your ability to express contrarian ideas. And if you only have press freedom for some people, for those who uh, happen to be in the chosen set, the chosen few, um, you don't really have press freedom. You you have uh, effectively a a state-approved list of of journalistic content and everyone else can't be included in it. And and you're right, there's there's no clear answer to who isn't, isn't a journalist, particularly in in the modern age. So it's a quite ridiculous exception. I think it highlights, again, the muddled thinking in the, the government's approach on this topic. And, and it does seem to me as though this is another case of the government trying and failing to be all things to all people and that some of the most vociferous campaigners in favour of uh, an online harms bill of, of whatever shape have been some of the major newspapers until you know they found out that actually a lot of their commenters and their comment sections could be censored under new rules. So the, the government's had to start talking about journalistic content exemptions and, and 
things along these lines. It does seem to me there's a kind of competition aspect here where a lot of the more traditional broadcast media are fairly happy to screw over their uh, digital platform competition through these sort of rules and become the, the gatekeepers of acceptable press and acceptable journalism and, and journalistic coverage. Just quickly before we move on to the paper that both uh, you and Victoria contributed to, Matthew, we, we know that Ofcom are going to be heavily involved in the creation of these online speech codes. Should we be concerned by that? What's their kind of track record on free speech in general? And I suppose, you know, you do go into this in the new paper for the free speech union. So yeah, look, it's it's not particularly positive reading when, when you start looking at Ofcom's record. At the start of the pandemic, they effectively issued guidance to limit dissent when it came to expressing contrarian opinions. And, and whatever you think about lockdowns or about vaccines, whatever else you, you might think is a controversial issue here, you certainly don't want to stop people from being able to debate what is some of the most impactful, con- controversial, authoritarian policies that, that we've ever seen in it's such kind of liberal democratic countries as ours, especially in modern history. And the fact that Ofcom's instinct was the public can't be trusted was to hear certain perspectives doesn't really give me particular confidence. At the same time, they've been expanding out some of their, and this is some of this comes down from the EU, in terms of certain protected classes and categories and who can and cannot um, express opinions on certain issues and based upon you know, race and gender or, and, and whatever else. Political opinion, I think, was one of them. Yeah, you can't just come on the basis of political opinion. <laughs> so we're, we're finished. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're done. Maybe that saves us, Victoria. If, if, if they can't discriminate based on political opinion, maybe the, the Guardian and the BBC and, and whatever else has to have us on every day. Oh, great. I, for one, welcome our new <laughs> tech censorship overlords. <laughs> uh, dear, oh, dear. So in the, the paper um, for the Free Speech Union, we, we've talked about some of the problems with the bill already, but as we all know, you, you often can't get anywhere with um, just criticising uh, new government measures and schemes. So what, what sort of alternatives are there in mind from a more liberal pro-free speech perspective when it comes to online harms? Well, this was actually really, really difficult. And Matthew and I have agonized over this actually we've been agonizing over it for so long we first started agonizing over it when you're allowed to have a drink in a pub because I remember sitting trying to uh, work through this over a over a glass of wine Um, and the reason it's so hard is because intuitively the answer to improving the proposals in the online harms white paper is to just stop it and don't do it and um, there is no good way to gatekeep and execute ex ante controls over speech that you're allowed to publish. You know, in this country, we have very strong protections under the common law for, for free speech, and we don't have duty of care in the way that the government has tried to, to manufacture it in this context. It's, so it's very difficult to come up with a, a way of mitigating it. So we eventually came up with a sort of package of ideas to both cut out certain parts of it. So cut out anything that's to do with misinformation and disinformation, anything that is to do with a qualitative assessment by a platform of what may or may not be true or reliable um, should should not be a legal obligation on them. If they want to do it for quality control to improve the, the content experience of users, great, that's a private decision and should be encouraged, absolutely. But to have a state-mandated requirement to filter out unreliable content that the state deems to be misinformation should absolutely not be part of it. And then we also worked in some ideas for how to 
building free speech protections into the processes that Ofcom will undertake while it produces its codes of practice and takes enforcement decisions so that alongside doing impact assessments that include things like the cost or impact on innovation they should include a free speech impact assessment in everything they do. Mm. And I think that the core of the proposals that we're trying to put together with the free speech union is to say whilst we do think that there is genuine concern about particularly some of the, the most heinous activities online, uh, that the government's proposals won't do much about it. And that a key part of that then is to try to ensure that law enforcement is better resourced and that individuals then who are, ha- are actually doing the abusive behaviour or, or posting the, the child exploitation material or, or terrorist content are uh, followed up. And what right now effectively happens in a lot of cases is that the police are quite limited so they can only only really follow up on a very limited number of people and that's just because there are so many reports going on and and so many issues to deal with another idea that's been floating around we think is has some potential power um, and again focusing on the individuals responsible for the, the bad behavior is is the use of ipnas which are injunctions to prevent nuisance or annoyance and that those should be used sparingly is a, is a more legalistic tool where if someone is serially abusing you online, let's say they're, they're going after you on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, you could effectively give them a, a legal order to say that they can no longer use those platforms um, and, and face the legal consequences if, if they don't do that. Or alternatively, if it's someone you know who uses Tinder inappropriately and causes issues with, with women when they go out on dates saying, well, you can't use online dating apps, as well as ensuring that individual cases of bad behaviour are prosecuted, but also that you have a kind of injunction to stop them doing broader sets of behaviour. And we think that has some legs to, although we don't want to see it overused, of course, we think that has some legs to really target behaviours online that are inappropriate without actually leading to more broad-based censorship. Because you've got to realise the whole internet safety uh, approach the government's currently taking is just focused on the platforms. And the platforms aren't doing the harm, despite the fact that they can have a duty of care. It's, it's actually a ridiculous concept because the, the platforms themselves aren't the ones causing harm to individuals. It's individuals causing harm to each other. And if you can break that down and say, if you're the perpetrator of some genuine unlawful behaviour, you should face consequences, but not everyone else should be censored in order to achieve that goal. Well, as we await the online safety bill with bated breath, I think we can only hope that the government takes notice of recommendations such as uh, both of yours, free speech unions, and everyone else from the civil liberties sphere that's done so much work in trying to water down some of the most negative uh, anti-free speech proposals involved in this whole affair. But on that note, I think it's time to end the podcast and say thank you at home very much for listening. This has been the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute podcast with me, Daniel Pryor, and my colleague and head of research, Matthew Lesh, as well as our guest for today, Victoria Eusen, the head of regulatory affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. If you like what you've heard, then please do subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And until next week, thanks for listening. Bye for now.